0: We started a new series last week. It was also our Christmas service, and so we didn't give a big intro to the Book of John. We're going to be going through the Book of John all all year long, well, actually all the way till two weeks before Christmas next year. Um, and so, get used to the idea that we're going to be walking through the Gospel according to John. Um, our our our, our theme this year is a fresh glimpse of Jesus. We need a fresh glimpse of Jesus every day. I need a fresh glimpse of Jesus every day. We had an idea of, 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 what, of what this series meant to us and what this looks like to walk through John and get a fresh glimpse of Jesus. And just just last night, I, I, I opened up in... Uh, in my Bible that I read, the Gospel Transformation Bible, and I was reading the introduction to John, and I, and I was astounded at the, at the way that they described this gospel, and, and it's the way that I see it, too. So I want to read that to you as we start today. He says, setting out to find a gospel focus in John's gospel might seem like the challenge of finding a mountain in a photo montage of the Swiss Alps. An exercise in the obvious. It's about Jesus. That's what he's saying. Yet there is a great difference between holding uh, a travel brochure in your hand and actually standing at the base of the Alps. It is the difference between pleasant thoughts and soul-gripping wonder. A curious imagination and awe-fueled adoration. Being well-studied versus being knee-buckling stunned. John's gospel is written not just to inform our minds, but to inflame our hearts. Think of John's gospel not so much as a book, but as a destination. John is a tour guide of the Alps of the gospel. He says to us, his readers, you've got to see Jesus for yourself. There's no, there's so much more to Jesus and what he's done for you than you can possibly imagine or even hope. If you'd open your bulletins, pull out your notes, I'm going to pray. (coughs) we are going to read the section for today and I'm going to preach. Heavenly Father. I thank you that you came here to this earth, that it was not easy, that your life was far from easy, and that we have a a picture, a glimpse, a gospel account, and we can we can see how you lived, how you handled hard times, how you loved people. It was radically different than anything that we've ever seen. I pray that you would open our eyes to it. As we read through John, we we know that there's some things in there that are going to seem this year like we've never seen it before. And there's things in there that we've seen before, but life's gotten busy and, and we've lost it. I pray that we would find it again. I pray that we would fall more in love with you. I pray that we would fall more in love with each other. I pray that we would fall more in love with this world. That we would be willing to go into the darkness with the light. Though the light, when it it goes into the darkness, is not always welcome. Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Inflame our hearts. And light us on fire for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at at the beginning of what's called the prologue. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 is, is referred to as the prologue uh, to this gospel. We looked at the first nine verses last week we saw that Jesus a picture of Jesus Jesus is the word he's the logos we saw that Jesus is the life we saw that Jesus is the light today we're going to pick it up in verse 9 again and we're going to see that Jesus is the one who saves us Jesus saves us in John 1 9 through 13 it says the true light which gives light to everyone nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the things that always struck me with my brother Sean is when he prayed, he, he always prayed and he would pray, he, say, he, would, he would call out to God he would call him Papa. Sean was a son of God. He was a child of God. And he knew that. And he loved to Pray to Papa. Today, as we look at this account in the gospel, we see how Sean and us become children of God. It's through Jesus. John starts this, he says, He says, the true light which gives light to everyone. Now, as I was studying this before, before this week became so hard, one of the things that 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 kept striking me was this 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 poem from this 1990s-ish uh, uh, a poet. His name was Marshall Bradley Mathers III, and he said he said this. He said he said I'm Slim Shady the real Slim Shady all those other Slim Shadys are just imitating so will this real Slim Shady please stand up please stand up please stand up <laughs> and of course we know this is is the alias of the rapper known as Eminem aka Slim Shady and he's saying in essence that I am legitimate He's a white rapper. He doesn't fit the stereotype. Other people are trying to be to be copycats. And he, in this song, is saying, no, I, I'm Slim Shady. I'm the real Slim Shady. Now, that's cheesy. And I thought, no, I, I can't say that in the wake of this announcement. So, and then I thought of Sean. I said, Sean would kick me in the rear end and say, if you don't, if you don't start that way, then then... And I'm, he would have been mad <laughs> That's right. and, and, and yet it, it, it brings this up that, that John is this is this this man whom who he, he he describes himself this way he says I'm the one who Jesus loved John the son of Zebedee was one of the twelve disciples he 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 was one of Jesus's closest uh, uh, friends and students <laughs> and he lived he lived the longest of all of the disciples. He lived to be about 100 years old. He had told us stories about Jesus his whole life. I got to tell you about Jesus. And then at the end of his life, he writes them down for us. And he says, I, he starts his, his account. And he says, look, let me tell you about Jesus. The true light." He's testifying that Jesus is legit. That he is the true light. That, that all these things will tell you this is what life, this is what's true in life. Magazines will tell you. The world will tell you all kinds of things that you need in this life to make you happy, to make you whole. And, and John starts off, he goes, now forget all that. He goes, Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the answer. In your notes, we've, we learn from this that Jesus is the only way. It says, He is the only way we can become children of God. Jesus is the only way to become a child of God. Now, in in our society, our politically correct society, people don't like that. People don't like it if we say, no, Jesus is the only way. There's only one way. Matter of fact, people are offended by that. But I just declare that it's because they don't understand. To say that Jesus is the only way is not to be offensive. And I'll give you the analogy that we've used before. If, 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 if somebody that we loved or, or ourselves had, had, had some type of disease and it was terminal disease and, and there was no cure, there, there was no hope for being cured and we just wouldn't process that. And imagine one day somebody calls you on the phone and says, we've found the cure, we've tested it, it's time-tested, it works. And we want to give it to you for free. It's the one thing that can fix you or your loved one. It would be absurd to think that anybody would react and say, one way? That's so offensive. I want to pick my own way. Why can't there be options? It's not offensive to say that there's only one way to be healed, to be right with God. It's awe-dropping that there is a way at all. And John starts his gospel saying, Jesus is the only way. And we also learn here that our our response is required. He says that, that He came. And his, he came to his own. The Israelites, the Jews. If anybody's going to be happy to see him, they've been waiting for the Messiah. He is the Messiah. You would think they would throw a party. And yet it says they rejected him. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a couple of things that are fears that, 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 I, that I'm ashamed of how, how, how they control me. I'm afraid of failure. I don't like to do things when I think that there's a chance I might fail, and I'm afraid of rejection. I don't like to put myself in places or circumstances where I might be rejected. And here we have Jesus Christ, God, almighty, who comes in the form of a human being. In the flesh, incarnate. And he knows he's going to be rejected. And yet he still comes. I don't know if that hits you as profound, but that is profound, so let it hit you. This Jesus, he came knowing he would be rejected. And our response is required. In one way, it's saying, really, in God's eyes, there are only two types of people. Those who receive him. And those who did not receive him. Or do not receive him. Those who reject him. And to those who receive him, it says, who believe in his name. He gives the right to be come. Children of God. Now listen, if, if you're going to be accepted into a group, you might be accepted into a friendship circle. That's important. You might be accepted into a workplace. They hire you. That's great. But to be accepted into a family, I don't think that there's any higher level of acceptance than that. And that is the level that he's saying... God accepts us at, to be children of God. He gives the right. A lot is made up today of of something that is not healthy in our attitude, and it's the attitude of entitlement. Have you guys ever heard about entitlement? Entitlement is when when you start to believe, you allow yourself to believe that you deserve something. You deserve it. I'm entitled to it. Entitlement leads to misery. Entitlement leads to misery. Because when you're entitled to something, when you deserve it, you either get it and then that's, okay, that's cool because I deserve it. Or you don't get it and then you're angry. Where's the worship in that? Where's the thankfulness in that? You're not entitled to it. He literally gives you this right. Not because you deserve it. But in spite of the fact that you do not deserve it, it's called grace. So we see that we're saved by grace. And in this prologue, we have this picture of what we we see all throughout the Bible, all the way in Genesis, when God makes a promise to Abraham. We see that his promise was made by faith. It says in Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed and it it was credited to him as righteousness because he believed. It was faith. It was because of faith. This promise in, in Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham. He said, he said I am going gonna, gonna to make you. He, he was giving him this promise. I'm giving you this promise. It was grace. He did not deserve it. You cannot look at Abraham in Genesis. And say oh yeah that makes sense. He picked him. He continued to make mistakes. God picked him by grace. Through faith. And his promise pointed to something. We learned about that in Galatians. It was a promise that was going to have its fulfillment in Christ. In the first book of the Bible, we see that it's through faith, by grace, in Christ alone that we can be saved. And here, John starts his gospel in the same way. It is by believing. It is through faith. It is a gift of God. It is by grace. And it is in Christ alone that we can be saved. And the next thing we see in this text is we see that Jesus doesn't only totally save us, but he came and he shows us the way. Jesus shows us. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh. Jesus became incarnate. Jesus became a human being. God became human, both human and 100% human, 100% God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, when it says he dwelt among us, you, the Greek you could literally translate it as he pitched a tent with us. <clears throat> Jesus pitched his tent with us. The picture of this very Jewish man, John, who's his friend, this picture would have come from Exodus 33 through 40. And we learn about this guy, Moses, very old school. Moses, right? You can, you, you can get more old school than that, but not when you're in church. When you're in church, if, you're, if, if they ask you a question, you just have to know two references. Is this Old Testament or New Testament? So if it's Old Testament, then the answer is Moses. If it's New Testament, the answer is you guys must have been at Sunday school. <laughs> when we go back to Moses and we see this picture in Exodus 33, we see that, that, that they're, they're trying to figure things out. Now, they've already made some mistakes. God has miraculously opened the Red Sea. He's let them out of slavery. He's literally saved them. And he's leading them to a place, a promise, a promised land. They're in between being saved and the promise. Sound familiar? It's the very place we find ourselves in, in between being saved and our final promise. The first thing that that they need to learn from God is how to live. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them rules through Moses. Now Moses goes up and he's hanging out with God, having a great old time. And he comes down with these Ten Commandments. He didn't know that, because I think time probably wasn't affecting him at that point. But everybody else, it was 40 days. 40 days can feel like a long time when you're waiting. And he's coming down the mountain and he realizes they had been waiting and it had taken too long. They didn't want to wait on God anymore. They didn't want to wait on Moses anymore. So they took things into their own hands. They said, We want something that we can touch. We want something we can see. And they start to create this calf, this golden image, and worshiping it. And Moses is coming down the mountain and he realizes that, that, they've, that they've made this calf. And before you get too angry at them, just stop and think Are you good at waiting? I'm not. I can't tell you how many times. 40 days, if I'm praying for something earnestly for like four days, that's too long. i just like, oh, I'm just figuring it out on my own, you know? And it's been 40 days. Now, Moses is walking down the mountain. He drops the tablets that God had written. I don't know. If you're like Indiana Jones, those are very valuable. You don't drop those, right? But he drops the tablets. That's how hurt he is. And now Exodus 33 God's going to give them a second chance. Are you guys thankful that we have a God who gives us second chances? Individually and as a community. That's exactly the place that they find themselves in. And we see this picture that they have this tent. They're in between the the, the salvation and the promised land. Like us. And Moses creates this thing. He calls it the tent of meeting. And it's very clear in Exodus 33 that he puts it outside of the town. And every time they need to meet with God, that's where they go. And Moses would go in there, and he, he, his face would get all shiny, and he had to put a veil on there, so people weren't ready for that, right? And all of these things are happening. And, and Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. If, if, we're gonna, if you're going to lead us through this hard season to the promised land where there's lots of big enemies and we're going to have to have lots of faith, I need to know that you're with us. And I want to see your glory. And God takes Moses and he says, I will show you my glory, but you can't see my face because you'll die. He says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put you right over here and I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to put you in the cleft. And when I come by you, I'm going to cover your face and then I'm going to go by you. and I'll take my hand off when I'm past you and you'll see my backside. You'll see the backside of my glory. And he does that. And Moses sees it and he realizes one fat holy clue that God was right. When you get a a, a grip of, of God's glory, it's it's it could be too much. And, and and this is how God's leading the people. They know and then they make the, they make this tabernacle, this tent, where God would dwell with them. It was a picture of God being with them. The tent. And they got to see his glory through Moses when his face was shined, and then God took this tent. And he put a cloud over the tent. God literally brought the presence of his glory in the form of a cloud. Because that's all they could handle. Just a misty cloud. And that is their experience of of, of the tent and the glory. And then Jesus comes. And it says, and the word became flesh. And he pitched a tent among us. Not not outside of the town, but among us. This is amazing. He says... And we have seen his glory. Glory as as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not in a picture, not the backside. We saw Jesus. We have a picture of God with us, in Jesus. Paul sees this as so profound in Colossians. He says, this was something that people have been wanting to see forever. And now the mystery has been made, made, made known to us. It's been hidden for ages. It is Christ in us. He dwelt among us. He didn't pitch a tent outside your town. He made you the tent. And he lives inside of you. And together, when we come together, we all have Christ in us. And we tabernacle together. And the world sees it, and they see his glory. This is the picture we see that Jesus pitched his tent with us. We see that Jesus makes known the glory of God. And we see that Jesus is the perfect example. When we see Jesus, we, we learn how to love people. And he turns your world upside down. If you if if you know the, the church is wrong historically a lot. The church is not always a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. I am not always a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. When I read the Gospels, I'm regularly saying, How does he know what to do? How does he know how to treat people that way? I would think if you were so forgiving of that person, they would take advantage of you. And yet, somehow, when you're so, you front love like that, it, it impacts them so much, it changes them, it transforms them forever. I wouldn't have known that unless you showed me. And he says, that's how I want you to live. He becomes our example. In John 13, 15, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And he says this, he goes, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, of course, in the context of of this chapter, he's talking about washing his feet. But I don't think that it's stuck in that context. I think it's relevant for everything that we see in Jesus. I've been your example. So that you would know how to treat people. How to love people. How to go through hard times. How to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because usually we're jealous and, we, and we we're not too happy when somebody gets something that we want. No, I want to teach you how to do that. How to, how to, how to, how to mourn with those who mourn. I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable with anything uncomfortable, and I just want to move on. I want to go around it. No, no, no learn to sit through it. If it takes a month or, or six months or, or a year or 10 years, no rush, I'm here with you. Because God showed me that example. He came, and he dwelt amongst us. He came to me. He made himself known to me. He makes God known to us. This is our Jesus. And lastly, we see in this account, we see that Jesus sends us. We'll start in verse 15. He says, now John bore witness about him. Now here's the confusing part. Okay, you have two Johns here in this story, right? You have John, the son of Zebedee. He's one of the disciples. And then you have John, the baptizer, right? He's the guy that shops at Urban Outfitters. He has a camel outfit, and he eats locusts. And he's out there baptizing people. His outfit is actually the exact repl- replica uh, out of Elijah. right? Way When it got out of style, he brought it back. Or he tried. It didn't really work. But this is John the Baptist. It says, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. He said lots of weird stuff like that, right? And people didn't always understand. But what he's saying is that he came, like it says in Isaiah 40. You read Isaiah 40, you go, wow, that's talking about John the Baptist 700 years before he ever came. It's like, it's, it's a perfect picture. Isaiah 40. He was the forerunner. He came in the, in the image of Elijah and, and fulfilled all of these prophecies that, that when the Messiah came, Elijah would come first. It's John the Baptist. That's why he's wearing that outfit. And he shows this picture. And what does he do? Just pointing people to Jesus. He's just a witness. See, John goes, here's Jesus. The real Jesus. All those other promises, all those other lights, all those other things, those are just imitating. The real Jesus, he showed up. And then John comes. John the Baptist. He says the same thing. And here we find Two thousand years later, all of these people, myself included, who are witnesses, saying, Jesus changed my life. Jesus tabernacled with me. Jesus took me when I was dead and broken, and he breathed life into me. And he was patient, and he's still at work in my life. And he's promised that I can be confident of this, that every day of my life is going to work a little bit more. Philippians six, Be confident of this. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's, that's when, when that waiting time, when he saves you in the, in the promised land, in that waiting time, until that time ends, he's going to be at work in your life. Making you become Who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The first thing we see here is that God uses people to spread the gospel, to be witnesses. God wants to use us to be witnesses of His goodness, of His glory. Yesterday was a hard day for me, for many of us. I, I sat in the Spearman's living room, and we, 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 we went through all of these different things. We cried, we prayed, and then we told some stories about Sean, what we remembered. One of the stories I'll always remember, and, the, and there was probably a million, was Sean. Somebody said that when it was his birthday, this kid's birthday, everybody was out of town, all his friends, and Sean wasn't really that close to him. But but he found out and he called him. He said, "Hey, let's go get a beer together, Sean." And they went and they had a drink together and they celebrated his birthday. And and, he, and there was this 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 couple of girls that were were a, a, a little on the other side of the bar and he saw these guys kind of bothering them. And Sean, as Sean does, went over and intimidated them and said, "You know, skedaddle." He protected them. He was a he was a protector. And he and he listened to them. And he found out that one of them had this really hard story and was going through a really hard time. And the testimony that I heard yesterday was, I was in awe of Sean because in a, in a bar, the least likely place that you would think, Sean sat for a half hour and all he wanted to do was talk about Jesus. And he, and he, was, just, he was just saying, you've got to know this Jesus. My life's been real hard, he said, but Jesus is changing me. Jesus has impacted my life, and Jesus loves you, and he'll do that for you, too. And here we are, every day, we go to work, we're neighbors, we're we're people. What does ministry look like? I'll tell you what, the church has made this ugly picture of ministry like it's a bunch of programs. Programs might be good, but ministry is not programs. Ministry is telling people about Jesus and helping, walking through them when life is hard. It's being learning from the example of Jesus and trying to live that out. That's ministry. That's life. It's not a bunch of programs. Sean taught me that. And John the Baptist teaches me that. And the Bible teaches us this. That we are witnesses. And we're supposed to spread the gospel. This teaches us that God gives us grace so that we can give grace to others. Grace is treating people better than they deserve. You're not entitled to it. Grace is treating people better than they deserve. Jesus Christ treats me better than I deserve. As a husband, I want to treat my wife better than I think she deserves. Even more importantly, I want my wife to treat me better than I know I deserve. (laughs) That's race. When you're driving on the freeway, treat people better than they deserve. When you're an employee, treat your boss. Work harder than they deserve for you to work. When you're a neighbor, be a neighbor better than they deserve. When you live in this country and you don't agree with the government, be a better American than they deserve. It's grace, because God has given us grace upon grace, and he says, live that way. J.D. Greer gives us this, this gospel prayer. He calls it the gospel prayer in his book called The Gospel. He says it's this. <clears throat> he says, in Christ there is nothing I can do that would make God love me anymore, And nothing I've done that makes God love me any less you ever stopped and prayed that? God, I just choose to believe today that there's nothing that I can do to make you love me anymore. Because you already love me with full saturation. And there's nothing that I've done that makes you love me any less. That's mind-boggling. That doesn't make sense. That's grace. The last thing we see, and we'll have the worship team come back up, that we are all broken and need Jesus. He says, we become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Moses came and he gave us this law. Moses came and he gave us this law. The law couldn't fix us. The law shows us we're broken. The law shows us we're broken. Jesus reminded of this because the Pharisees, they thought they were keeping the law perfectly. And then Jesus says this hard thing. He goes, you've heard it said that, that, that you shouldn't commit adultery. If you've ever looked lustfully at a, at a woman, then you've committed adultery. He says. He makes it harder. He goes. He goes. You've heard it say, "Don't murder." No. If you've ever had hate in your heart, you aren't any murder. Jesus is not saying, "Hey, I'm expecting you to be perfect if you want to be right with me." He's saying, "Look, you got to all understand. If you want to follow the law, you're just a long way away from, from the standard you you leave it at, but you can follow." It is impossible. We we all break the law. We are all broken. And we all need Jesus. And John wants to proclaim. And John the Baptist wanted to proclaim. And Sean went around everywhere. He wanted to proclaim. And it should get in our heart. We should want to proclaim. It's not judgmental to tell someone that they're messed up. It's judgmental to forget that you are messed up. We're all messed up. And we're not, our job is not to go out and judge each other and tell each other we're messed up. It's, it's, it's to embrace each other and say, I know the answer. I found it in Jesus Christ. And to proclaim that and to live that every day. Now, the hardest part of a sermon is to start and, and to finish. In a day like today, even harder. And so I want to I want to leave you with a picture. What we're going to do next is we're going to we're going to worship and we're going to respond. Sean Spearman met with me three times over the last two months. The last time he, he told he, he said some things that were that were more flattering to me than than I, I deserved. And he said, you know what I'm praying for Remembrance? The one thing that Remembrance Community Church is missing is we don't know how to respond to God. And you know what? He was right. And over the last month, I think God was listening to Sean's prayer because I think something's been stirring up. But I know this. I know Sean's heart for us was that we would recklessly with reckless abandon, look up, know how loved we are by God, and worship Him with all of our hearts. And so let's stand, and let's look up, and let's respond. If you need prayer for anything, we don't have a program ready for that. But we have a room full of people who love Jesus. So find someone around you and ask them to pray for you. If you need to just be quiet and pray, be quiet and pray. If you need to raise your hands and sing like like Sean would do, then do it. But let's respond to Jesus.